Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time and learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about the entrepreneurship gene, our relationship to technology, and women in tech, which is why it's absolutely perfect that we're talking to one of the most influential women in tech on the planet, Randy Zuckerberg. Randy graduated from Harvard in 2003 and later became one of the first employees at Facebook working alongside her brother, the company's founder. She left Facebook in 2011 and has since authored four books, started her own media company, run multiple television shows, and even performed on Broadway. In April, she joined us in Norway at the Oslo Business Forum, where she told us her honest reflections on the Silicon Valley mentality and ended her spectacular talk with a personal song about our relationship to technology, which made the crowd go wild. Joining us on the podcast today are also her co-founders at the Zuckerberg Institute, Brian Patrick Murphy and Michael Lithig. Thank you. First of all, what a beautiful introduction. I had such a wonderful time at the Oslo Business Forum. It was really one of the highlights of last year for me. And uh, it was really incredible seeing the amazing culture of innovation that's going on. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> that's so nice to hear. We love to have you there. It was really, really special for us. I loved speaking, but even uh, more uh, mind-blowing, a robot uh, handed me a chocolate bar at the Oslo Business Forum, and that just totally <laughs> blew my mind. And uh, and so I, I, that that made me very happy. <laughs> well, I'm very glad to hear that we in Scandinavia can impress too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so we like to kick off the podcast with a couple of questions for the listeners to get to know you better. Randy, why don't you tell us what your morning routine is uh, over in New York? Oh, gosh. Well, um, it's funny because I never would have classified myself as a morning person ever. Um, but I have become a morning person because I have two young children. So my day starts uh, probably somewhere around 6 a.m., 6.30 if I'm very lucky. Um, and uh, I love, I mean, in the morning, I really get to be focused on my children. I try very hard not to reach for my phone for at least 30 minutes after I wake up. Um, so yeah, so if you were in my house in the morning, you'd see me in full on mom mode. Um, but I love after I drop my kids off from school, I, I have about a half hour walk home from school where I listen to podcasts. That's really my time to catch up on everything. And then, um, it's fully into work mode from there for the day. Now, the great thing about what I do is that no two days are ever the same because I'm involved in so many projects and I travel so much to meet entrepreneurs around the world, I could, you know, a day of business for me could be in Oslo speaking at a conference, or it could be um, sitting in a Broadway theater. I'm co-producing three shows on Broadway this spring, or it could be sitting with Michael and Brian at our office, um, thinking about ways that we can be more helpful to entrepreneurs around the world. So definitely never a dull moment. No, it seems that way. I mean, you are so fascinating in everything that you do. Um, and I guess this, this question is kind of different for you than it would be for most other people because I'm, I'm sure that you probably do this a lot and I'm not even sure if you have anything, uh, called a comfort zone anymore. But, but I, I want to ask you, when was the last time that you stepped out of your comfort zone? 
Oh gosh. I, you know, I try to do it every day. Um, I once had a mentor who told me something maybe a little too extreme for the average person, but it really stuck with me. My, the mentor said, um, at least once a month, you should like feel nauseous from fear. Uh, that means that you're doing the right thing in business. And now, you know, maybe that's like a little bit extreme. I don't know if anyone should feel nauseous from the things that they're doing, but um, but it really stuck with me because it, I've now viewed my entire career through this lens that if you feel comfortable and safe, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. Um, it means that everyone else around you is going to be surpassing you and that um, it really is those moments when you do feel uncomfortable and you do feel nervous and anxious that you know, that you're doing the right thing. At last year, I gave over 50 keynote speeches. And I think at every single one, people asked, you know, oh, you must not even get nervous anymore because you do this so much. But I still, I get butterflies every single time I go on stage and it's because I care. I care about if my content is resonating. And so that feeling of discomfort, um, I love stepping into it because it makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I do a lot of public speaking too. And I hear the exact same thing. People ask me, oh, but I'm sure you never get nervous anymore. And I'm like, I'm so nervous every time because you care, right? I mean, I think that's a really good thing. But but Randy, you've done more things in your career than most people honestly do in a lifetime. And uh, writing up this podcast, I didn't even know where to begin because since you've left Facebook, you've built an entirely new profile Built on your passion and you've started several companies such as Zuckerberg Media, the Dot Complicated Podcast, an animated children's show, Dot, and you've written a New York bestseller, Dot Complicated. I saw in an interview that you once said that everyone had always told you that you could get any job that you wanted, but never that you could create any job that you wanted. Uh, Do you have a special gene for entrepreneurship or could you tell us the short story of how you became such a fearless serial entrepreneur? Oh, that's I mean, thank you. And I, you know, I say that a lot when I talk to especially parents and educators, because I think we're really, really good at when we talk to young boys about telling, you know, encouraging them to, you know, be creative and invent things. And when we talk to young girls, we we try to empower them by saying things like, you can have any job you want. There's no more glass ceiling. But my point was that we never tell girls that they can create any job they want. And so we are just having these generations of young girls growing up that are not thinking of themselves as entrepreneurs or inventors because no one ever tells them that they can be or or believes in them that way. For me, you know, it's always come very naturally. I was involved in theater as a young kid. And uh, I think the number one thing with being an entrepreneur is that you have to get okay with rejection. Because that's the only thing that separates a good entrepreneur from a bad is that a good entrepreneur can get rejected 50 times, pick themselves up the floor and go for try 51. And uh, you get prepared very well for that when you're in theater, because, you know, you have to audition for tons of parts before you even get considered for anything. And so I learned at seven, eight years old how to you know, go sing in front of adults, get flat out rejected, and then still learn that the sun comes up the next morning. Um, And that has prepared me better for a life of entrepreneurship than any class that I ever took anywhere. So um, I, I really credit a lot of that. And I think the same with children who play sports, competitive sports, and and have 
those, uh, you know, those opportunities to win or lose and, and recover from that. Um, I also, of course, came from a very entrepreneurial family. Um, my father is a dentist, but he was definitely not your average dentist. He always had the latest, wackiest computer gadget. He had this gadget, I remember when I was young, that you could take a photo of two people sitting next to each other and then switch their smiles so you could see how you would look with, you know, after the dental work had been done with someone else's <laughs> mouth. Now, today you can do that on Snapchat with, you know, one one flip of a filter. But, you know, in like 1989, that was pretty groundbreaking technology. Um, and so I really grew up with a lot of risk taking and entrepreneurial culture in our household um, I guess the final thing I'll say on that is that I think in today's day and age, if you want to play in the media space, you have to be in kind of 10 areas at once because nobody knows what media of the future will look like. You cannot just double down in one area. And that's why you find me on podcasts, in radio, in animated TV, in blogs, um, in everything, because no one really knows what the media landscape is going to look like a few years from now. And so you don't want to be that person who's only doubling down on TV and then get stuck. That's so true. And and now you've recently started on a new venture, uh, the Zuckerberg Institute, in uh, which you provide entrepreneurial training to mid-career business leaders who are sick of the status quo and feel overwhelmed to take the necessary steps to up-level their careers. And I know that on this, you're working with Brian, Brian and Michael, also joining us on the call. Could you tell us uh, what spiked you to start this company and what you essentially do? Absolutely. And I'm thrilled to have Michael and Brian here um, on this end of the call with me. One of the things that I love the most every day is just connecting with entrepreneurs and helping them. And what I found was when I give something like 50 keynotes a year, I get to meet a ton of entrepreneurs very superficially, but then I don't, then I have to get on a plane immediately and go to the next location. I don't have the time to do that deep dive. I mean, I met so many incredible entrepreneurs in Oslo when I was there. And then I think three hours after I spoke, I had to run to the airport to get on a plane. And what I realized was that I was missing that opportunity to have a deep connection with entrepreneurs around the world, especially since you know, if you're lucky to be in a city where there's a lot of other entrepreneurs and a lot of resources, you get that support. But in most cities around the world that are not Silicon Valley, you don't have that support. And it's difficult to be an entrepreneur. There's a lot of emotional struggles, as well as struggles uh, around business and financing. So I, I've spent about the last year or two thinking, you know, how can I solve this problem? How can I better service these entrepreneurs that I'm meeting all around the world, but not finding myself having the time to connect with them? Uh, and that's where Michael and Brian came into my life. Um, Michael and Brian have been my personal coaches for several years now, um, really helping me up-level so many aspects of my own life. Who better to help guide other entrepreneurs than the people who have been coaching me? Um, and so the three of us work together to develop a curriculum and a program. And I'm, we rolled it out just a few months ago. It's called Zuckerberg Institute. First class is our kind of intro program that entrepreneurs around the world can take. And, um, I think we, we've 
had graduates now from all over the world, which is just so incredibly rewarding to be building that family. So maybe I'll I'll let Michael and Brian say a few words too, so I don't completely monopolize the conversation. Yeah. One of the things we believe at Zuckerberg Institute is that, as Randy said, everyone has the potential to be an inventor, a creator, and an entrepreneur. And we believe that by creating community and connection, uh, we can have experiences like I had when I met Randy Zuckerberg. Even though I had built three businesses, I didn't identify myself as an entrepreneur. It took someone like Randy Zuckerberg to say, you know what? You're a great entrepreneur. You are doing things in the world. And I, and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'd never thought of myself as that. And I would love to give other people that type of gift to say that all of us have the potential to create and have our own creation out in the world and that we can do that together. And so we do that by creating community. And so we're really excited about First Class and the programs that we're offering. We offer intensives. We're coming actually to Sweden, um, March 23rd and the 24th. And we'll be doing um, a weekend intensive there. We're coming back in June to Gothenburg. So we're doing some really exciting events and we're super, super excited. I think uh, just to jump in with one more thing there, um, I do believe that anyone can learn to be an entrepreneur. It's not a skill that, you know, you're either born with or too bad. Anyone can be a great entrepreneur. But what a lot of programs out there don't teach you, like they basically just yell at you to hustle harder and work harder. And if you're not successful, it's your fault. You're not, you know, working hard enough or staying up late enough. And and I, I don't believe that. I think the reason that I feel so comfortable being an entrepreneur is because I spent 10 years in Silicon Valley learning the mindset and being surrounded by thousands of other entrepreneurs. And so that's really what we want to do with Zuckerberg Institute is to train people who don't come from that environment of how anyone can be a great entrepreneur. It sounds really, really exciting. But I, I read on your website that one in three entrepreneurs suffer from depression and express loneliness in their work. And they're more worried and stressed than other workers, leading to fatigue and failure. Uh, and then to combat these problems, you created the concept, which you mentioned, the first class that uh, aims to empower and enrich a new generation of entrepreneurs. Um, so besides having these programs uh, around the world, can I ask you of a sneak peek of what you're going to tell the people who join you on the, the six-week online course? Yeah. Um, hi, this is Brian Patrick Murphy speaking now, and you got to hear Michael before. And always following Michael and Randy is like the hardest task on earth because they're both so brilliantly eloquent. And so I'm, I'm happy to be the one to, to talk about this. Um, the great thing about our six-week program is what we really believe for entrepreneurs, It's a it can be a lonely world like those statistics that you just showed. Michael and I have done a lot of research uh, in the last year, really, that talks about how there are now more businesses closing every year than are opening every year. So all these small businesses are closing and many people are terrified to start new small businesses. So they're going to work for big companies. And so we see that as as a real opportunity here to, to go and say, hey, let's really teach people a process. And that's what you're going to hear us talk about 
constantly is what is the process of getting into the entrepreneurial mindset, right? Because it's not just about hard skills, although you have to have those as well. And we teach those as well, but it's ultimately about what are you creating in your day-to-day schedule where Randy mentioned a second ago, it's not about working harder or hustling more for most people. Of course, some people that's the truth, but for most entrepreneurs out there, that's not the truth. It's about how can you work smarter? How can you create smarter processes for yourself? How can you do things and surround yourself with a group of people? And those are the kind of things we're going to talk about in Stockholm when we're there in March is who are the people you're surrounding yourself with? Um, There's also a lot of statistics, speaking of which I know I'm going on a tangent here. There are a lot of statistics that show if you are a entrepreneur and wanting to start a business, you are like twice as likely to succeed if you have another founder of the business with you than if you just simply go it alone. So even you might have a great idea, then who's the other person that you can convince to go on that journey with you? So these are all the kinds of things that we talk about. We talk about how to show up daily with your integrity, how to show up daily with courage in your business. Like Randy mentioned, it may not be something that's going to make you want to vomit every month, but you are going to have to make decisions every single day that are really, really challenging and really frustrating. And nobody leads better than Randy. Um, I hope it's okay that I can say this. The easy thing for Randy would have been to stay in Silicon Valley. That would have been the easy choice to make, but she's a great leader. And the reason that I personally am so inspired by her is because I want to look to somebody that says, I'm willing to do the the hard thing because of my passion, because I believe there's more in me than just staying where it's the easy thing. So that's the process that we're going to teach people as part of Zuckerberg Institute and first class. And we believe that it is a muscle that must be trained. It's not something like Randy said, you're not just inherently born with it, or maybe you can say you are inherently born with it. You just have to train the muscle to to do it. So that's what we believe in is that we say, Hey, anybody out there can potentially do this if you're willing to train yourself over time. So that's what I'm super excited about. And I really know that the people are going to connect about that. And um, I'm going to pass it now back to Randy. What he said. (laughs) Okay. What he said. Okay. Good to know. Um, Well, uh, Brian and Michael and Randy, you definitely sold me. I am an inspiring entrepreneur myself, getting my hands dirty. And uh, a lot of the things that you talk about, seem very tempting to learn more about because entrepreneurship is really, really hard. And there's so many aspects that you need to uh, need to handle, not only the hard skills. But um, but back to you, uh, Randy, because you've spent so many years in tech and you continue to shape the industry for from wherever you are, basically. But um, with a reflective and sometimes critical view on it, which I uh, love. uh, And in 2013, you published your first bestselling book called dot complicated, uh, an adult nonfiction book which addresses the multifaceted complications of our socially transparent world. And you write about how technology and social media influence and inform our our lives online, and you highlight the importance of going offline. And then you started an online community under the same name, helping us navigate and untangle our wired and wonderful lives. And I think anyone... Uh, back in 2013, but also definitely in 2019 can relate to the need for this. Uh, what sparked your interest to write this book and start the community? And why do you think it's so important to disconnect? Gosh, I think, you know, again, having sat in Silicon Valley for so many years, um, a lot of people out there, I mean, gosh, they're, they're taking on some of the world's biggest problems. It's a very inspiring place to be. Uh, 
At the same time, I think people also sometimes drink the Kool-Aid a bit too much in that they think technology is the only answer to some of the world's biggest problems. And now for me, I grew up in New York City. I have two young children. uh, So I spend a lot of time thinking about things from both a technology aspect, but from also a real world aspect as a mom as someone who lives in a major metropolitan area with people from all over the world. And um, I just, you know, I'm such a believer in technology. I love it. I truly think there's so much opportunity in all of our lives and, and tech is making our lives better. But nothing is 100% positive, right? Like, if you go to the gym too much, that is not 100% positive. If you you know, are only eating one kind of food, that's not 100%. There's nothing that is kind of the be all end all answer in our lives. And uh, what I thought, in especially in 2013, there was a big void was for people who understood the tech industry, but could look at it from that balanced critical viewpoint. Um, I, you know, there are a lot of people who come at the tech industry super critical, but without the understanding of the opportunity. And then there's a lot of people that come to the industry thinking, wow, all of these possibilities, and they don't ever question what's happening. So that's really what I thought the unique role that I could fill. Uh, The interesting thing is that now sitting here in 2019, I think last year, um, a lot of people started to enter this discussion around the pros and cons of technology. And a lot of it was around things that I've been writing about for six years now. And so I feel like I can, you know, truly step up as an authentic voice in the space because I didn't just jump into this conversation when it got trendy last year. It's something that I've really been living and breathing and writing about for, you know, for many, many years now. What do you, I mean, being an expert on this, uh, as you obviously are, what do you think the consequences of us being too addicted to social media and all our different devices are? It's uh, it's definitely a challenge because especially for someone who's on the road as often as I do, my devices are both my best friends and my worst enemies. Um, having a, a smartphone and, and a tablet and a laptop, I mean, that's the only way that I can give 50 keynotes a year and be on the road every week and still feel like I can be connected to my children is through technology and these devices. Um, just yesterday, I watched my mom play a board game with my seven-year-old over FaceTime. Like they played a full board game together in two different <laughs> cities. It was it was just such a beautiful, magical thing. On the other hand, I cannot tell you how many times I catch myself with the technology coming in between me and the people that I love because it's way too easy to reach for a device and have that occupy your time and attention. I think also when it comes to creativity, These devices are really stifling because um, in order to be truly creative, you need to give yourself that time and space to think deeply and be distraction free. Um, It takes almost a minute after you get a text message or an email to get back in the zone of what you were working on. And so um, 
that's something I really worry about, especially for entrepreneurs and for creative folks, is that that constant barrage of messaging and reacting to what other people are saying is really getting in the way of all of us being our most creative selves in our businesses. So I think there's both countless opportunity. Uh, for me in my life, the opportunity does far outweigh the consequences of tech, but it is a constant battle of reevaluating your own behaviors and boundaries every day. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree because it's it's something you really just can't live without. But then when it gets too much or you use it uh, in excess, it's it it's really draining. Uh, and I guess especially like the, the social media and all these pings and emails and everything like that, it, you're just constantly, yeah, just distracted. And it, uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering what kind of work you could be able to do if you were free from that for a sufficient amount of time. Because even if you do take a break for a few hours, it's still kind of there in the back of your head. But um, but uh, unfortunately, we don't have time to dive sufficiently into that. But I want to I want to go into one of our shared passions, which is uh, women in technology. Um, I heard in an interview that you told your mother back in 1996 that the glass ceiling was a concept of the past, but that you got a reality check when you moved to the Bay Area. And I remember at Oslo Business Forum in April, uh, you jokingly said that one of the best tips for being a woman in tech was having a boy's name. <laughs> and uh, for our listeners and perhaps especially the male audience, could you describe what it's like to be the only woman in a room full of men for so many years? Yes. Uh, and it's it's funny. I do remember having that conversation with my mom very vividly. She was one of the only women in her medical school class. Uh, she's a psychiatrist and um, she had to deal with a lot of very kind of sexist and inappropriate comments coming up through the ranks as one of the the lone female doctors. Um you know, the wonderful thing is that times do change. Now, I think there's more women graduating from medical school programs than than men. Um, and so all of these industries do change over time. But technology seems to be taking a lot longer to change than a lot of other industries. Um, we're still looking at an industry where only two to five percent of venture capital funding goes to female founders, even though there are many, many, many more female founders today than there were 20 years ago. Um, we're just not getting uh, that equivalent slice of the funding. Um, a lot of tech companies still post numbers that are fewer than 15% of their workforce is female. And then when you break it down further, I mean, that's mostly white females that we're talking about. If you break it down further, uh, the numbers get even more dismal there. So um, there's still clearly a long way to go. And I I do joke that having the name Randy, which is uh, typically a boy's name, has been a competitive advantage for me because when you're emailing people, they don't know if it's a, a woman or a man behind the email. And so it helped me get a lot of meetings in the early days of being a young woman in Silicon Valley. Um I am I am hopeful at what I see. I think there's more female investors who are out there, more female founders. There's a very, very collaborative community of female entrepreneurs that seem to really want to help and support one another around the world. Um, but I think there is that very needed sense of community. It's very hard for any entrepreneur to go it alone, especially a female or a diverse founder. And so that was, you know, really one of the other strong impetus for me to create Zuckerberg Institute was finding a way to give female entrepreneurs that sense of community. 
you mentioned uh, your your mother in in medicine and how uh, certain industries have uh, become uh, more gender balanced uh, with with time, but that it's for some reason taking a lot longer to change the the ratio in tech. I'm just curious, why do you think that is? You know what? I have no idea because there are more women graduating from college than men. Um, and, you know, you talk to any young girl and it is way clear that they are running laps around the boys of their equivalent age. <laughs> I have two young sons and I go pick up my sons at school and the girls are giving these full detailed descriptive accounts of the days. And my sons are like, Mom, I found a worm. Like, that's what I <laughs> can get out of them. And uh, so you it really makes you think like what happens between four years old with these brilliant girls and then getting out to Silicon Valley, what is going on? And so I've I have really dedicated a lot of you know the past decade of my career to trying to figure this out. I, I really want to figure out what is the moment that we lose girls in technology I originally thought it was maybe somewhere in late teens, early 20s, when people are starting to specialize and think about their career. But a lot of the research that I've done and other people have done has found that it is around nine or 10 years old that we start to lose girls in technology. It is because it is at that time when they start to become self-aware. They think, oh, I'm, I'm good at this. I'm not good at this. Or this activity is for boys. This activity is for girls. It's getting reinforced by their teachers. It's getting reinforced by everything they see in the media and on television and, and in images around them. And so it's really this crucial age of nine or 10. And, um, and that's why for me, I start a big component of what I started to do was to get into children's content. Yeah. And I, I, I think you're right. It's a lot about how we raise young girls versus young boys as well. I mean, we, we keep telling girls to be perfect and, and boys to be brave. And I think a lot of the, the, um, the skills that we're reinforcing in boys from a young age often drive them maybe perhaps more into the technology world or the entrepreneurship world than we do with, um, with girls, but for the women who are in tech and who are finding themselves to be the onlys in conferences or events or at the workplace, myself included, uh, do you have any advice to them? Sure. Well, I think you know there's uh, there's plus sides and downsides to everything. I think a plus side to being the only woman in the room is that you're very memorable. Mm -hmm. um, I never had an instance in technology when. Um, when someone didn't remember my name, but I remembered theirs, it was always the other way around, you know, as, as the only in a room, uh, you really have the opportunity to be very memorable and to make that lasting impact. And that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs fight for in this noisy, crowded world. Everyone wants to be memorable and stand out. So if you have that opportunity, embrace it and, and use it to your advantage. Um, on the downside, it can be very lonely. You can feel very left out of deal flow and opportunities. And so what I always did was I tried to find women in other industries because they weren't there for me in technology. Um, and so I would find women who were in law firms or uh, finance or in big Hollywood studios where they were the only woman. And uh, I created a peer network group of women who uh, were going through the same thing, but maybe in adjacent industries. And now it seems like 
every company, uh, it might be my own echo chamber, but it seems like a lot of companies are trying to increase the amount of women in tech and, and everyone's talking about uh, diversity and, and uh, wanting to foster innovation through it. Why do you think diversity is so essential in technology or, or business in general? I think it's essential in any business. I think um, if you truly want to serve a global, diverse customer base, then you can never do that if the people who are making the decisions all look the same and think the same and come from the same background. How can you truly ever create products or services that are applicable to everyone around the world? So I think um, it's not just a nice to have, we should do this to look good in a press release thing to have diversity. It is, I mean, there are hard facts about how companies with diverse boards um, make more revenue. There are hard numbers around uh, companies that have more diversity in the executive team, that it's good for the bottom line of the business. So uh, really, this is an economic issue for businesses. This is not like a nice to have issue. I also think very it's really hard to be the only woman in a business or the only uh, person of color in a business but once you have one it is much easier to recruit and attract more diversity into your business so um you know taking that first leap and really putting in that effort to bring in diverse candidates into the hiring process will pay off in spades do you have any personal experiences of how uh, increased diversity in a team or in a company that you've worked with has led to a greater invention or greater success? Gosh, all the time. Well, I have a, an example that's coming to my mind uh, immediately is how um, this helped uh, a team not make a very expensive mistake. Um, there was a team that I was advising and they were about to invest a lot of engineering resources and money into creating uh, a way to unlock your phone while it was still in your pocket so that you could use it and do different things. And they were about to embark on this. And uh, I came into an advisor meeting and I realized that it was all men in the room that have been thinking about this. And I just said, just hold on, you guys. Have you ever met a woman who kept their phone in their pocket and used it from their pocket? And uh, and that, I mean, that caused a whole reevaluation of the product because why would you spend that kind of money and engineering resources on something that only 50% of your customer base could use? So I think, you know, having that diversity in the room, not only can it benefit the bottom line, it can also keep you from making very costly decisions that will waste your time and your company's resources. And I'm sure every company would uh, like to uh, have that kind of insight or resource uh, within the team to avoid mistakes, but also, uh, I don't know, produce uh, a lot better products that actually respond to, I mean, consumers' needs. Uh, but when companies and I'm sure business leaders ask you this all the time, they're like, but how do we do this? I mean, how do we build a culture where diverse candidates are, you know, feeling that they can fulfill their potential, that we are able to attract more diversity? What do you tell them? I think it really comes from the top. And it has to come from a place of truly believing that that's right and making a priority. It cannot be just a nice to have thing that you do on one press release. It can't come from bottom up in the company trying to convince the leaders this. It has to be something where you lead from a place of truly believing 
that diverse opinions bring more to the table um, because diversity it takes effort. It takes more effort to go outside your comfort zone when you're hiring or to listen to those other opinions that don't always agree with you or support your hypotheses. Uh, but that's where businesses are going to see the most success. So that's why it truly has to come from the top. No, I agree. We're uh, The company that we've been building for the past few years is called She's Got This. And we've always... Uh, focused on getting CEOs or the top, top leadership to understand the importance of it. If not, it just boils away in the company. And, and they can't do it alone, but it does start uh, with them. Uh, and I think uh, more companies just need to realize that, just like you say, it's not a nice thing to have. It's not like a charity thing that you're doing. It truly is essential for the the growth uh, and success, long-term success of the business. Um, we have a very rapidly growing startup scene here in Norway and, uh, well, in the Nordics in general. And uh, I guess most of the entrepreneurs here dream of a success on the scale uh, of Facebook. And, and they were famous for their mission to move fast and break things. And as we've discussed, uh, I mean, or at least as you, uh, you talked about at um, Oslo Business Forum, there is some repercussions of this kind of bold ambition. Uh, so I'm wondering... What your advice to Nordic startups dreaming of a success on a scale like Facebook and how they should balance moving fast and being bold and taking risks with social and societal responsibility? Mm. Well, first of all, I guess the grass is always greener because I dream of living in Norway where mothers actually get to take leave when they have children <laughs> that's paid and the government provides resources and care and, and opportunity because I think uh, that's one of the biggest things that holds women back from entrepreneurship in the United States is the fact that you get two or three weeks off after you have a baby and then you're expected to go right back into it. And uh, I don't know how that's even humanly possible. And so I think there's a lot to be said about how Scandinavian countries treat women and, and provide opportunities. Um, the one thing I will say about companies like Facebook is that I think it's very easy to look in the media and think like what an overnight success that was. And um what I would like to urge entrepreneurs to think about is that um, behind every overnight success is 15 to 20 years of hard work that went in in order to one day wake up as an overnight success. And uh, I think it's very easy to, you know, look at other countries and think, oh, like if only I was in Silicon Valley, I could tomorrow have a, a billion dollar company or this or that. But you know, Facebook just hit its 15-year birthday. Um, it was really only in the last year or two, year or two, that the stock hit such high prices. Um, and even before Facebook started, my brother and that team had worked on something like five other startups uh, that you've never heard of. So um, this was really like a 20 to 25-year. Project that is now just seeing the fruits of its labor. And that's what I would urge all entrepreneurs to remember is that no matter where in the world you sit, um, behind every overnight success is decades of hard work. Yeah, there's no shortcut to success, I guess. Um, 
I want to discuss another one of your companies that you also mentioned at uh, Oslo Business Forum, which is called Sue's Tech Kitchen, which combines elements of immersive theater, cooking lessons, and hackathons so that kids can get their sugar fix while taking away valuable STEM skills. And I personally feel so strongly about getting more girls into uh, into technology. Um, could you tell me a bit about the companies that you've started aiming at spiking children and perhaps especially girls' interests and why it's so important? Yes. I mean, I, as I mentioned before, I'm very passionate about reaching that nine, 10-year-old girl and getting her excited about technology. But um, you have to bring the tech to the girls. You cannot expect nine or 10-year-old girls to have the self-awareness to know to seek out learning about technology. So you have to bring it to them in areas that they're already interested in. So um Uh, my team a little over a year ago, we had the idea of opening up these robotic dessert cafes around the United States, where uh, it really is a sweet shop where you could go get chocolate or you could get ice cream or things like that, except everything is a technology learning opportunity. The chocolate is made on 3D printers. Uh, the ice cream is made using liquid nitrogen. We have crepes that are made entirely by robots that you can watch. And uh, we purposely put these cafes in cities in the United States that STEM was not being taught in schools or that families did not have access to Wi-Fi or technology. Um, and we did that so that we could start introducing girls at a critical age. Um, we have a big problem in the United States, and I know many other countries do as well, where if you're lucky enough to be born in the right zip code, you have all the opportunities in the world at your fingertips. And if you're unlucky enough to be born a 15-minute drive from one of those zip codes, you essentially have zero opportunity. And uh, that's something that I think entrepreneurship can really change all around the world if we just put the accessibility of entrepreneurship and technology into the hands of more people outside of those lucky zip codes, that's something that we can really start changing the face of what a lot of big global issues look like. So um, that's really our, our mission with Sue's Tech Kitchen is to start introducing at a young age the wonders of technology and science and STEM to young children in places where they wouldn't have that chance. Oh, I just love that so much. <laughs> I wish I wish there were so many more companies like that. Uh, but I'm I'm I felt really hungry after you were describing. <laughs> I think that would just you haven't be... lived until you've tried a 3D printed chocolate s'more. Oh my god! I'm so. Where can I get that? I mean, like literally. I it, do you have a shop in New York? We'll have to do a Sue's uh, pop up in Oslo. Oh, 100. Uh, let me know, and I will help you set that up personally. Uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap, uh, wrap up the conversation. Uh, but from all the amazing things that you've told uh, me today, if there was one thing or two things that you really want our listeners to remember when they maybe go to work or go to bed, work wherever they are right now, um, what would that be? I think um, two things. I think the first is that there has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur than right now. Um, the tools that are at your disposal, the opportunities that are there as the world is changing around us. If you 
if you're sitting and listening to this podcast and you have even the slightest thought that you would want to be an entrepreneur, go for it. The time is, is right now. Um, and I think the second is that I hope people will check out what we're doing at Zuckerberg Institute. That's ZuckerbergInstitute.com. We have some great programs there. And I know for me, Michael and Brian, we are just so passionate every day about connecting and helping entrepreneurs around the world. And so we would love for that to be a first jumping off point for any entrepreneur who has a dream but doesn't know where to get started. I'm sold. Um, finally, we have three questions to wrap it up. Uh, if you could give your 20-year-old self two pieces of advice, what would that be? Um, I would say to get used to rejection. That is the only <laughs> uh, definite thing that happens to you in business or in life. So the, the sooner that you can get comfortable facing that, the better off you are. What is your favorite podcast? Gosh, well, I guess I can't say my own. Um, that would be too self-promotional. You so could say I, your own. You could say your own. Okay. That's fine. Um, I, I'm working on a, a podcast again for children. Um, it's called Once Upon a Timestamp, but we tell classic fairy tales. We we retell them for the modern world. So uh, the classic tale of the three little pigs and the big bad wolf now becomes a, a cautionary tale about launching cryptocurrencies <laughs> that will go away at the slightest huff and puff uh, and how to build a business that that holds on um, and different things like that. So, you know, just really trying again in, in so many different mediums to reach that nine, 10 year old girl and her parents and educators around these messages. I hope the Zuckerberg Institute also teaches uh, entrepreneurs to think as creatively as you, because that sounds <laughs> really, really exciting. Uh, and finally, where, where should people go to uh, follow you? Um, definitely ZuckerbergInstitute.com is a great place to sign up for what we're doing. Once Upon a Timestamp is my new podcast. You could find that on iTunes or anywhere where you get podcasts. And then for me personally, I am on social media at Randy Zuckerberg. Um, you know, as you can imagine, I'm quite active on social media, especially platforms that are owned by Facebook. And so <laughs> uh, find me there and I, uh, I would be thrilled to connect. I follow you on Instagram and I am very much inspired all the time. You do so much cool things, not only in entrepreneurship, but I've also seen that you're doing a lot of cool things on stage, both singing and acting. And I think it's fascinating because, uh, as you were saying, it's a very good skill to learn, uh, not only just uh, performing and, and, and uh, doing that under pressure and being under the eyes of very many people, but also rejection. Um, and rejection is, uh, is, uh, is a part of uh, that life. So, um, so I think that's a, it's an important message to have as well. But thank you so much uh, for joining us, Randy and Brian and Michael. This has been incredibly interesting and inspiring, and we wish you so much luck with the Zuckerberg Institute here in Scandinavia. Thank you. We can't wait to see you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us, and uh, I hope to be back in Norway soon. We definitely hope so, too. Thank you for listening to Future Forecast. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness. Tune in next week for more insights on technology, leadership, and sustainability. 